This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit wogcc.com. Morning, church. So glad that you're here. We're going to wrap up our series that I've been in for the past couple of weeks called Beyond. Last week, I talked about heaven and talked about beyond this life. And now this week, we're going to talk about a little bit more challenging subject beyond this life. We're going to talk about hell. And so as I began to research and look up exactly what people believed about heaven and hell, some of the statistics that I found were actually a little bit more surprising than I originally thought. I looked for something reputable, and I found a group called the Pew Research Group, and they did a survey of people who claim to be American Christians, all right? So Christians in America, by the Pew Research Group, this is what they found, that 67% of American Christians believe in hell. Uh, the more astounding fact than 67% believing in hell was the same survey group, only 84% believed in heaven. Kind of made me scratch my head a little bit because I started thinking people who claim to be American Christians don't believe in heaven. There's actually 16% of that group that was surveyed didn't believe that there was a heaven. So I'm like, what is the goal then? You know, what's the point of us uh, putting our faith and trust in Jesus, being forgiven for what? To become worm food or to live eternally with our Savior? So it really made me question, man, what is being taught in churches? What is really being talked about that really challenges us and causes us to think and causes us to get to a point of belief? I get that 67% only believe in hell because I knew that number would be lower because we like the idea of heaven a lot better than we like the idea of hell. We really, really like the idea of heaven, amen? But when we think about a place of torment or a place of fire or whatever idea that you may have in your mind about what hell is, whether it's like a Metallica album cover, you know, or something like that, where, where, where there's constant, you know, drunken parties and, you know, heavy metal music or something like that, we have these goofy ideas about hell, and it makes sense that the majority in that poll would say, yeah, I don't really like that idea. But the thing that we need to come to the conclusion of is that the ultimate truth has to be the Word of God. Amen? Anytime that someone leads off a teaching with, I think, you need to have a red flag raised and need to go, wait a minute, am I going to base my belief system off of what someone thinks or am I going to base my belief system off of something that is solid and settled and true? For us to move any further in a teaching on the afterlife concerning heaven or hell, we have to see the Word of God as the standard for truth. So that means that if it says it in the Word of God, then I choose to believe it. And if my belief contradicts the Word of God, somebody has has to win the tug of war, and I have to go, God, are you really all true? Or are you only partially true? I think it's really arrogant of us to be selective and looking at different portions of Scripture and choose which ones we're going to believe and which ones we're not going to believe. I think it's really foolish for us to call one thing true and one thing a lie when it comes from the same source. 
That's my biggest conflict, is that we like the things that make us feel good. We like the things that tickle our ears and make us have the warm fuzzies and that make us feel like a lovely, just a cloud of, of, of marshmallow peeps that we're all riding on and just occasionally snacking on. It's a wonderful experience. That sounded really good to some of you right there. Others, not so much. But regardless of what your idea of heaven and hell is, somebody's idea has to give, and there has to be something that says, no, this is what it is, and this is what it is not. And we have to agree that the Word of God is that truth, because we can't be selective of that truth, especially when the source is the same. So basically what I submit to you today is either God is all true, or He's not true at all. And that's really the debate that you have to come to a conclusion on, within your own heart, because God is not going to give us all of the truth and then part of that be littered and sprinkled with lies and things that aren't true, because then we leave it up to our own human reasoning to go and to create our own cut and paste, our own scrapbook version of Scripture with only the things that we like. Anyone can do that. There's no faith required to do that. It's just pick the things you like and get rid of the things you don't. It takes faith to see beyond that and to believe the things that are both encouraging and the things that are challenging, the things that may make me uncomfortable. So I would like for us today to go to Scripture as the ultimate source and look at that as our source of truth when we look for definitions about what is known to us in the afterlife. Did you know that Jesus taught on hell more than anyone in the Bible? Jesus actually spent 13% of his teaching while he was on this earth that we have recorded in Scripture talking about the subject of hell. And he spent a great deal of that teaching also talking about heaven and the afterlife. And he spent a great deal of his uh, portion of his ministry speaking about the kingdom, the kingdom, and talking about heaven. But he also spent quite a bit talking about hell. Matter of fact, in his very first sermon that we ever have recorded, the famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't waste much time bringing up this uncomfortable, sometimes politically incorrect, subject. Let's look at this together in Matthew 5 and 22. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Look at Matthew 5 and 29. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Matthew 10 and 28, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Look at Matthew 25 and verse 40 through 46. Jesus said, the king will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Verse 44, then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we did not minister to you. Jesus goes on to say, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As we look at Jesus' teaching, he mentioned this quite a bit, and this is only a sampling that I chose from different scriptures of Jesus talking about hell as an actual place where people will actually go. But people have different views on hell based on what they've grown up, maybe the theology that they grew up in, the tradition that they grew up in, and different things have formed those thoughts on hell. Maybe some movie that you watched or some book that you read or you heard someone else's experience, but some people, they look at hell as like this temporary type of torment for those who reject Christ. It's like a temporary thing, or maybe it's maybe an event. I'll never forget one time a guy had a conversation with me about three years ago or so, and he was talking to me about the subject of hell, and he said, I believe that hell is more of an event than it is an actual place. And I said, well, that's interesting because the Bible doesn't teach that. Yeah, well, I think that. Well, we have to decide what does the Bible teach, what do we think, who's going to win. So I did a lot of research, and I found three primary views that different traditions or just people in general have on the subject of hell, and these are the three primary ones that I found over and over again, and I'll share these with you today, and maybe they'll challenge you because maybe you have one of these views, or maybe you were taught one of these views, or you grew up in a tradition that taught one of these views, and let's look at what Scripture has to say in light of what we have created or come up with or chosen to believe. The first one is called annihilationism. There's certain people that believe in something called annihilationism, and what the basic premise of that is, is that's the belief that Hell is real, but it's just temporary torment for those who reject Christ because everyone will ultimately, who is in hell, be annihilated. Well, that's one view of hell that says, okay, so it's going to be like this temporary place of torment, but then one day God's going to say, okay, I'm done with you guys. I'm completely wiping you out. No more with you. You're done. You're annihilated. And that's the view of annihilationism. The problem that I see in Scripture with annihilationism is we just read a handful of Scriptures, and there's many more, that talked about an eternal hell, that talked about eternal punishment, that talked about it not being a one-time event, that talked about it not being a temporary place of punishment, but Jesus continually said eternal. And I think when Jesus said eternal, he meant eternal. I'm just going off what Jesus said. I mean, I think that's reliable. But Jesus said that it's eternal, so therefore, whether I like it or not, are you understanding me this morning? Whether I like it or not, I have to go with Am I going to trust the words of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or am I going to trust my idea of what I like and what I don't like? Because my intent today is not to cause fear or manipulation in any fashion, any way, shape, or form. We don't do that here at Word of Grace on any subject in Scripture. Perhaps you grew up in a tradition that when the subject of hell was brought up, it was used from a manipulative standpoint to try to move on people's emotions and play on people's emotions to cause a certain reaction or to have a good church service or a good altar call or what have you. If you're confronted with this issue, it's not because Pastor Derek's trying to cause you to be afraid 
afraid because if you know Jesus, there is nothing to fear. Amen, somebody. And I'm not trying to manipulate you in any way, shape, or form. I'm simply trying to teach you not my ideas, not my thoughts, but rather what does Scripture say so we can be clear in what we believe. A lot of times our traditions teach us, but guess what? Traditions aren't always right. Bum, bum, bum. Just because it's always been done this way or said this way doesn't mean it's always right. So I have to submit those ideas no matter how difficult that may be. And I need to say, God, what do you say? Because you have the last word. And I need to submit my thinking and my belief to him. So annihilationism is that belief that believes everybody's going to be taken out one day who is in hell. But we see clearly over and over again that the Bible does not teach that. The second, the second one that I want to bring up is the most popular idea of religion as a whole in our day and time, and it's gaining traction very, very quickly. And you may have had thoughts in this realm, or you may have heard teaching in this realm, and it's called universalism. Universalists believe that basically all roads are going to lead to heaven, that everyone is going to end up being saved, but their belief in the universalism church believes that everyone will be saved, but at the same time, they do believe there's a hell, but it's a place for people to experience suffering, so they'll repent and Jesus will give them a second chance. So it's like you need to have a little bit of suffering because you rejected God here on this planet, but don't worry, it's all good. You're going to get a second chance after you suffer a little while, and then when God says, now do you want to come to heaven? Yes, absolutely. This is the worst place ever. And that's what universalism would teach Concerning the subject of hell, it really bothers me because this is another human idea that we created because it bothers us to think that there would be friends or family members who would reject Christ and who instead of them rejecting Christ and the result of which being them living an eternity in hell, we would rather the idea of maybe God will give them a second chance. But when I look in Scripture, I see the complete opposite. I see Jesus saying over and over again, the way to destruction is a very wide, broad path. But the way to the truth, it's very narrow, and there's few that find it. He said, but the way is broad that leads to destruction. He's saying all these things with urgency. He's saying things like, the harvest is great, but the labors are few. So pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth labors into the harvest fields. Not so after they die, they get a second chance. If that's the case, then the guys that get the second chance, that go through a little bit of punishment in this version of hell and then make it to heaven, they're going to tell each one of us, we could have stayed home on Sunday and watched the Packers or whoever instead because we wasted our time because there was a second chance. It just hurt a little bit. Now we're good. And that's this universalist idea of hell. Think about the Apostle Paul and the urgency in which he preached and the physical punishment that he was willing to go through and many, many others throughout church history. Think about the urgency which they preached to try to see those who didn't know God be reconciled to him through hearing the message of the gospel. Thinking about the urgency and the price he was willing to pay, I don't think he was feeling such an urgency to simply go, well, don't worry if I missed a few, then... They've got a second chance. No, he wanted to make sure everyone heard because of the benefit being to be absent from the body is to be present 
with the Lord. Amen, somebody? So we see over and over in Scripture there is no such thing as this second chance. And then the last belief that is also a popular one is one of inclusionism. Inclusionism basically believes that hell isn't real, And Jesus forgave everyone, so there's no purpose in this life other than to simply just wait on Jesus to take us all to heaven because everybody's going there. It's this idea that if God is love, then love is just going to forgive everybody and everybody's good and no one needs to do anything about it. And those of us who chose to live our lives in a way where we put our faith and our hope and trust in Jesus are basically wasting our time because it doesn't matter how you live your life. When you go to heaven, everybody's good and everybody's there and you're like, oh, I didn't know. I guess I wasted my time there. Because we have this problem as people with consequences for actions. We have a problem in culture today with people being held accountable for actions. We have a problem with anyone needing to suffer or lose or come in second place or last place. We have an issue with this in our culture, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And we think that, oh, everybody's going to win in the end. No, 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 not everybody's going to win in the end because let me give you a, a good illustration. Let's say that there is someone who's a homeless person. This person is starving, living on the street. And then someone has compassion on this person and shows this person love and says, you know what? You're living out on the street. You're living homeless and hungry, and I'm going to build you a house. And not only am I going to build you a house, but I'm going to stock it full of food so you never have want of anything you need ever again. I'm going to take care of all of your needs. You're not going to have to worry about lack or fear sleeping on the street. I've got you a nice plush bed that is in this house. It's fully furnished. I got you all the good channels. Got you a DVR so you won't have to miss the shows when you're gone from your home. I got everything you could want or need. And then that person rejects you and say, no, I would rather sleep on the street. How stupid would that be? We would go, who in the world would do that? And and, and I'm telling you, you don't owe me anything. You just need to receive this gift that I have prepared for you, that I've given to you. Now, if that person were to die on the street homeless, would you come and blame me? Would you come and say, well, you didn't love that person. You must not be a person of love. I did my part. I I, I provided the home. I, I, I stocked it full of everything the person needed. It was the person who rejected me. It was the person who chose to live homeless, the person who chose to starve on the streets. It wasn't that there wasn't a way prepared. It wasn't that there wasn't sufficient means made. It was I did everything for the individual, and the individual chose to reject my gift. It's the same thing when we try to say, well, how could a loving God send people to hell? Folks, God doesn't send people to hell. They reject Him, and they choose to go there themselves. You see, it's the same thing as that homeless person rejecting that free gift. It's that person saying, God, I don't want your forgiveness. I don't want your love. I don't need it. I'm fine on my own. When we reject the gift of free salvation and forgiveness and redemption in the eyes of a holy and perfect God, it's the same as us balling up our fist and shaking it at God, saying, I don't want your son. It's us saying, I don't need you. I'm fine on my own. I'll make the decision later on in life. I'll, 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 it, when I'm on my deathbed, perhaps. I don't need you right now. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to trust you. I don't want your ways. I don't want anything to do with you. And then we get mad at God for not being loving. 
Folks, God has prepared the way, amen? The Bible said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said, I've made the way. He said, I've opened a door that no man can shut. Are you going to walk through is the question, amen? Are you going to walk through? So this idea that God is not a loving God because people go to hell, that's not at all true because here's the thing. Hell wasn't really even intended for people. But people are going to be there. That's the sad part of the story is that hell was not intended for people. Look at Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. We read that just a little bit earlier. Jesus said this in the parable of the sheep and the goats. He said, they'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse, into the eternal, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire was not created for people. It was created for those who had rebelled and rejected against God. And if you look back in the Scripture, you see that that was originally the devil and his angels who had rebelled and rejected God. And so the place was prepared for them. It wasn't intended for people to go there, but people will go there because of that same rebellion, because of that same rejection. Hell's not a place where you're going to have heavy metal music and demons partying while Satan's sitting on his throne. And you got the little demon with the whip, and people are pushing around wheelbarrows full of rocks. What are they doing with those rocks? I have no idea. But every time you see images of hell or a cartoon or a movie or something, people are always pushing rocks around. I don't know why the rocks, but there's always rocks involved, and it seems difficult. It seems horrible. No, 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 no. That's not what Scripture teaches hell is going to be like. Satan is not going to enjoy hell. It's not his party place that he hangs out in. It's not a place where demons go, yeah, hell, all right. No, that's not the purpose of hell, nor will Satan, nor any of the fallen angels or the demonic forces enjoy hell no more than those lost souls who reject Christ. Look at Revelation 14 and 11. Revelation 14 and 11. It says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image who forever receives the mark of its name. Hell is referred to as this place of eternal darkness, this place of torment, not only for those souls who've rejected him, but for the devil and his fallen angels who have rejected him as well. Hell's referred to as a place where there's no light and where it's the greatest distance between God and the absence of God. If you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter 16 this morning. Luke 16. Luke 16. We're going to start looking at verse 19. This is a parable Jesus told. This is an interesting parable, too, that Jesus told, because normally when Jesus told parables, he just said there was a man, there was a certain man, or there was a certain woman, or whatever. He never gives names to the characters in a story. But in this story, he gives names to his characters. I don't know why. I'm not smart enough to have figured that out. So if you, if you know the answer to that, come find me and let me know, because I'm very interested. Why did he give a name to the characters in this particular story. Now, the name that he does use is the name Lazarus for a poor beggar. Okay, that's the name he gives this man. 
And it's not the same Lazarus that those of you who may know other stories of Jesus' miracles, the one who died and then he came back from the dead that was a friend of Jesus. It's not that Lazarus. He's just using that name because it was a common name in that day and time, just like John or Mike, something like that. That's more of a common name in our culture. That was more of a common name that he was using. Why? I don't know why he chose the name Lazarus to particularly use here, but he doesn't name the other character in the story. Very interesting. Luke chapter 16, let's look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He was covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and the rich man the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, I have five brothers Send him to my father's house so he may warn them, lest they also may come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Man, that's a crazy parable that always has just bothered me because here's this whole idea of these two guys. One goes to heaven, one goes to hell, and the guy in hell can see Abraham and he can also see Lazarus, and then he's just begging that Lazarus could comfort him by simply dipping his finger into cool water and simply putting it on his tongue. But Abraham says that's not going to happen because the distance is fixed between us and you so that no one from hell can enter into heaven and no one from heaven can enter into hell. He said there's a great chasm that's fixed between us. He said there's no way that that's going to happen. He said, okay, okay, okay. If that's not going to happen, then Abraham at least send Lazarus back from the dead to live on earth again so he can go and warn my brothers. He said, They're not going to believe even if he was raised from the dead. He said, because they didn't believe the law or the prophets, which was basically Jesus saying he didn't believe the Scriptures. Because when the law is referred to in Scripture, it's referred to the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses. So they referred to it as Moses' writings. He said they didn't believe Moses or the prophets, the prophetic writings about Jesus Christ. The book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, 
the book of Daniel, all of those different books that are pointing to Jesus, he said, all of these things have been written and shared over the years so that you would know, so you would know to put your faith and your hope and your trust in God and in what He was doing, that you would be justified by faith. And so if he didn't believe the Scriptures, then he's not even going to believe somebody coming back from the dead. Same thing that happened to Jesus. Jesus went about everywhere doing miracles, healing people. And then there were certain situations where religious leaders or unbelievers would try to trap Jesus and they would say, show us a sign if you really are who you say you are. And how would Jesus respond? He would say, you wicked and perverse generation, what are you doing begging for a sign? Don't you see in the scriptures that I am who I say that I am? I'm not going to perform a trick for you to try to convince you There have already been things written all throughout history that should point you to me so you should see me for who I am. He's not going around and and, and doing these signs and miracles so people will go, oh, that's a neat trick, and then they try to figure out how he did it so they can further cast blame. We're all skeptical when we see stuff happen anyways. I wonder how they did that. They probably CG'd that video. You know, That's not real. No way that happened. He said, they're not even going to believe if someone raises from the dead, because we would probably doubt even that. He said, if they didn't believe the law and the prophets, which shows us the authority and the weight of Scripture, shows us how important that it is. See, folks, there is heaven and there is a hell. There are no restless ghosts that are floating around looking for closure. I know that there's popular ideas that, that there are spirits haunting, then they're trying to find some closure. And they're going to make things shake and move and make weird noises until we finally get it. Folks, that's not real. That's not of God. Stop messing around with that stuff because it's not of God. And there's no truth to a spirit being lost, floating around, looking for closure. It's either heaven or hell. There is no in-between. There is no, you know... This person is trying to speak to me to get me to understand something. There is none of that. There's no communication there. We see all throughout Scripture that this is the truth. There's no such thing as a second chance. There's no such thing as purgatory. As a matter of fact, I looked up the belief on purgatory just so I know some of you may have been raised in a tradition where purgatory was taught or believed, where it's like a, an area of punishment where someone can be chastised for the wrongdoing that they've done, some type of waiting room before they are able to enter into heaven. And then also that was exploited. Not only is that teaching not scriptural, but it was exploited because then those who were in charge would say, well, for X amount of money, we'll offer up this many prayers, and that'll help get this person out of purgatory sooner. So it's kind of like you're posting bail for people from, uh, from torment in the afterlife. That's not scriptural. That's exploitation is what that is. I looked up purgatory, and purgatory was invented in the 11th century. So in the 11th century, um, Pope Gregory came up with the idea of purgatory. It was not accepted worldwide by the Catholic Church until the Council of Trent in 1545. So even after it was created, there were several hundred years that went by before it was ever even adopted into the dogma of the Catholic Church. And then from there on, people began to use it as a form of exploitation. It's not real, it's not scriptural, and it's not something that we should believe in. Everything we do 
Everything we do affects eternity because it literally is either heaven or hell. Everything we do affects eternity. Is it affecting not only our life but others' life so that they can enjoy the presence of God forever, so that they can live in heaven? And if this is your first time jumping in on this series, you really need to go back and listen to last week because I talked about heaven. It was great. Everybody was patting me on the back saying, man, that was a wonderful sermon. Oh, I loved hearing all the things you shared from the Bible about heaven. And I was like, come on back next week. I hope you like the sermon next week too. Oh, I'm sure I will. I hope so. Oh, that sermon on heaven brought a tear to my eye. Good, 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 good. Come back next week. Because hell is something that we don't like to talk about, something that's uncomfortable. It's not culturally acceptable. It's not something that we like to deal with. We're like, okay, let's move on. Let, 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 let's get through this already. Let, let's, let, 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 let's move past this. But if Jesus spent 13% of his ministry talking about it, then it's something important for you and I to understand. No matter how uncomfortable it may make you or how uncomfortable it may make me, I mean, the thought of everything I do is affecting eternity. Man, that really challenges me at my core. Now, I'm not trying to convey some type of works mentality that you're either earning credits towards heaven or credits towards hell because we don't live under a works mentality. We live under grace, which said that Jesus saved us from hell and faith in him has made us right with God. And therefore, we are going to heaven, not because of what we have done or ever will do, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's where I'm putting my faith, my hope, and my trust. And if I put my faith, hope, and trust in the finished work of the cross and the fact that he was the substitute for my penalty for my punishment that he took upon himself of the sin that I have done, then I know that because he took that penalty that he has paved a way for me to have life and life eternal, that he has made all things new, and that I am living under that kind of grace that I've accepted through faith. Amen? Now, if I believe that, and if I've received that, then hell should not scare me. Hell should not worry me. Hell should not impact my personal life because I know that I'm not going there, not because of arrogance, not because I can claim to be a good person, because there will be people who claim to be good people who will live in hell. It's not because I'm a good person, because it's because I recognize that I need Jesus. Amen? It's because I put my hope and my faith in Him, so my hope for eternal security is in Jesus, not in how good I can be but it makes it all the more important that everything I do affects eternity, even though I can rest knowing that my eternity and my salvation is settled in the cross and that Jesus has paved the way for me to have life eternal in heaven with him. Even though I believe that, even though I can rest in that fact, everything I do affects eternity because everything I do is either drawing people towards that message of the gospel and that message of hope or it's drawing them away. That's why it's so important with everything that I do in my life. Not because I'm trying to earn merit or credit in heaven, but because I know that heaven is real and hell is real, and I don't want people to go to hell. Even if we use it as a form of of trying to curse at someone, we really don't want people to go to hell. We shouldn't anyways. Because hell is going to be a terrible place. It's going to be a place of darkness. Why is it a place of darkness? Because it's removed from the presence of God. It's the furthest point. 
in all the universe that is removed from the presence of God. You remember last week when I talked about heaven? You remember? Last week when I talked about heaven, that I said that when we found in Scripture that there's going to be no more need for the sun or the moon because God himself is going to provide the light, then if hell is going to be the darkest dark that anyone has ever experienced, then it's the furthest removed from the presence of God. Because it's the furthest place removed from the very source of light, God himself. And everything we do affects eternity. We're either showing people the way, the truth, and the life in our life, or we're not. We're either being salt and light in the earth, or we're not. My motive today, again, is not scare tactics, but rather urgency. To all of those who know Jesus, to share him with others. To see lost people come to Jesus. If you have your Bible, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, let's look at verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So in other words, let's stop right there. He gave us responsibility in this life. He gave us a ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? Verse 19 explains it. He said, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors, representatives of Christ. It's as if God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. Man, as I hear the urgency in the Apostle Paul's words, he's saying, listen, every one of us who have experienced forgiveness, every one of us who have experienced that message of reconciliation, we now have a duty and a responsibility to impact eternity by living our lives in such a way that we are representatives or ambassadors for Christ. Because we want to show people that there is a better way. We want to tell people there is a better way. We want to show people that there is hope. That there is a great and loving God who cares about you. And He wants you to want Him. He wants relationship with you. It's as if we were put right back in the Garden of Eden and were faced with the same choice that the first two people on the planet were faced with. Because in the Garden of Eden, here you have Adam and Eve, and God says, look at all my creation. Look at how beautiful and perfect everything is. I made this for you because I love you, and I want you to enjoy it. But there's one thing I want you to stay away from. Out of all of the goodness that you can enjoy, there's one thing I want you to stay away from. Don't touch this tree of knowledge of good and evil because it's going to cause our relationship to be severed, and you're going to die if you don't have me in your life. And that's what God said to them. And they could have spent their entire lives enjoying all of the goodness. They could have spent eternity 
enjoying all of the goodness and all of the things that God put there. And God wasn't setting them up to fail. No, no, no. God was giving them a choice because if God wanted to create a being that was forced to worship Him, then He would have done so. He would have created us as beings who were forced. But no, He wanted us to choose to love Him because real love is a love that chooses, right? It's a love that says, I want you. I choose you. I pick you. And real love, the kind of love that we were created for, the kind of relationship we were created for, is one where God says, I want my creation to see how great I am and choose me, even when they had the opportunity to not choose me. And in our rebellion, we rejected all of that goodness by taking from the tree. It's the same thing we do in our everyday lives, even though we're definitely not in Eden. I mean, my goodness, Eden would have already been over winter by now. We are so over that. But in Eden, everything would have been perfect, even though everything's not perfect here. But what we do see is that God still gives us that choice. He said, I've set before you this day life and death. Choose life so that you might live. He said, I've got the house built for you. It's fully furnished. It's fully stocked. It has everything you need. Stop sleeping on the street. Don't you know what I've done for you? Stop living in condemnation. Stop living in guilt. Stop living in fear. Don't you know what I've done for you? Stop living feeling rejected and neglected. Stop living your life in a way where you feel like you're always less than and coming up short and having to serve other people's opinions. Don't you know what I've done for you? Every time we choose the other, it's like we're putting our hands back in that tree. Wanting our own way, saying, no, it's too good to be true. No, it's not real. No one would do that. That doesn't make any sense. I'll find my own way. And God says, I'll let you if you want. I'll let you find your own way. But there are those of us who recognize the goodness and the greatness of God because we say, I want to have relationship with Him so I can know His goodness, so I can know His heart for me, and I can live for Him in a world that is surrounded by people who are in self-selected slavery. They're in self-selected slavery to sin and bondage and fear and worry and fret and depression and all sorts of things that want to ruin our life, but God says, I've made a better way. Why don't you choose me so that you can live? Not only in heaven, but here on this earth as a testimony so other people can see how good I am. So they can be reconciled to me too because you're reflecting my goodness in your life. Because they see how you react differently when all of a sudden there's talk of layoffs at work and everybody's freaking out. But because you know God and your hope is in Him, something is different about you and your life becomes a testimony to others in the middle of crisis. That everyone else is grumbling about all of the potential changes at work, but you choose to live at a higher standard and people wonder, why is this person not getting in on the gossip about the higher-ups in the company? That people wonder, how come when that guy cuts you off in traffic, you didn't react the way that I always react? That all of a sudden you begin to manage your life with a different set of values, a set of heavenly values, a set of biblically val- bi- biblical values, a set of values that heaven says you can have life and life abundantly, and that you experience a little taste of heaven on earth because you choose to do things God's way, even though it may be more difficult and it may be going against the grain of society. 
that you choose life, that you choose God's statutes, that you choose God's criteria, that you say, I want to live for you. I want to experience you here on this earth, not just in heaven, but here now in this earth so my life can be a testimony to how good you are here in the mean now and now. We used to sing a song in the South. I don't know if you sing it in the Midwest, but we used to sing a song in the South, old hymnal, old Baptist hymnal. The one that Jesus used. <laughs> or so we all thought. Open up that hymnal to page 764 and let's sing in the sweet by and by. In the sweet by and by. And we'd sing that. And it's not that bad. And everybody wants to sing about heaven and talk about how great things are going to be over there. Another song we'd sing in that same old Southern Baptist hymnal was Everybody Will Be Happy Over There. Everybody will be happy, will be happy over there. But until it's going to stink here. No, that's not God's best. You know that? I don't need Scripture over there. I'm going to be face-to-face with God. I need Scripture here. Amen. So I need to learn how to live in the mean now and now, not the sweet by and by. I need to learn how to experience God's joy here, not over there. Because over there it's going to be easy. It's going to be natural. It's going to be like, duh, you're going to be joyful. Here I struggle. Here I have things that want to come and tempt me. Here I have things that want to come and distract me. How do I deal with it here? God says, let me show you how. Let me show you my value system. Let me show you my ways. And everything that you do here is affecting eternity because you're showing people that the standard that this world has set, there's a different standard, and it's God's standard, and it glorifies Him and points people to Jesus. Amen? That's why you come to church. You're coming here to learn instruction, to learn the Scripture, to be inspired to do something with it, to hear it, to encourage other brothers and sisters in the Lord to do the same to help them out of their difficult seasons, to walk with one another through our struggles and through our joys so that we can encourage one another. Everything we're doing is impacting eternity. For those of you who helped with our kids' remodel, we're about 80% done with it. Man, we got some amazing-looking stuff over there. If you helped with that, guess what? You're not just helping put a room together so we can go, oh, neato, look it, a room. You're impacting eternity with the way that you're using your time. What if, what if you volunteering your time to put up some sheetrock, to paint a wall, to cut some two-by-fours, to run some nails and some screws, what if the construction of that room enabled children to walk into that classroom that did not know God or have any exposure to Him in their lives but then some teacher who also volunteered his or her time went into that room that you volunteered your time to put together to share the message of hope and truth and it planted a seed in them that at some point changed their eternity. It takes all of us together recognizing everything we do impacts eternity. It's not just about the pastor getting up and sharing the message. It's not just about the teacher showing up and teaching. It's everybody else who helped prepare that way to make all of that stuff happen. 
Everybody having a hand in sharing the message of the gospel. Everything you do impacts eternity. Don't tell me all you do is stand at the door and hand out bulletins. Don't tell me all you do is pour a cup of coffee. Don't tell me all you do is just stand there and say hello and hold the door open. Everything you do impacts eternity. Everything you do impacts eternity. Because you're helping to chip away at the hardness in people's hearts. Because you're redefining for them an experience with God that perhaps they've never had or that needs to be redefined because they're wounded from their past experience with God. You're redefining something for people. Don't ever take lightly your service for God or what you're doing for God. Don't ever say, I don't know if I'm really making a difference because I'm not the one up there sharing the message. I couldn't get up here and share this message if it weren't for people like you coming and giving and serving and doing what you do. It is not about me. It's about all of us together serving in the roles God has carved and created and equipped and gifted us to do so in. Because everything you do impacts eternity. So am I spending my time in a way where it's impacting people's eternity for God or by my neglect and by my disengagement, by my lack of urgency, by my lack of purpose, are the things that I'm doing impacting them to be stalled in hearing the message of the gospel, in seeing something different, in seeing someone react differently to a situation that's trying? Because everything we do impacts eternity. We are ambassadors for Christ. Amen? Hell is real. Heaven is real. It is eternal. People who don't accept God's gift of salvation will be there. But the good news is, is that we still have time to impact eternity. Amen? Amen. If you are breathing right now, you still have time to impact eternity. If you can still move, if you can still speak, if you can still do things, if you still are drawing the gift of breath in your lungs, you can do something to impact eternity. It may not be the person who actually leads that individual to Christ through praying with them and being the person who introduces them, but perhaps somewhere along the way, you didn't even recognize or realize You had a hand in helping chip away at hardness in people's hearts because of your love, because of your patience, because of your forgiveness, because of your integrity, because of your moral ethic, because of your patience and love and care, because of you going the extra mile with someone by you not giving up on people who have given up on so much in life or have given up on God or have given up on church, but you won't let them go and you stay with them and you keep pressing and you keep being faithful and you lift them up in prayer. Nobody ever sees that stuff, but I guarantee you heaven sees it. And they're cheering you on and they're saying, don't get weary in well-doing. Don't give up. Don't stop connecting with your local church body. Don't stop pouring into the Word. Don't stop pouring time into prayer. Don't stop being patient with that coworker that you have had it up to here with or that family member you've had it up to here with, the one that's disappointed you over and over again. Don't give up on that person because everything you do has an eternal impact. And if we recognize that, then we say, yeah, heaven is real. Yeah, hell is real. And I want to make sure that I'm living my life in a way that people would be influenced and led to see the goodness of God. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.